Metricast. This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Happy 2023. Listeners, you can now support the continued growth of the show. Go to glow.fm slash e2 if you're interested. That's glow.fm slash e2. If you enjoy the content we are producing here and our show is part of your podcast routine, check it out. Today on the show is Caitlin McGregor. She's the CEO and co-founder of Plum. After building two businesses for other people, she founded Plum to help organizations fully leverage the human potential within their workforces. Plum equips business leaders with the talent data needed to match employees' talent to roles where they will thrive. In this episode, we discuss psychometric hiring and why companies hiring for skills are getting talent acquisition totally wrong, why the talent shortage is a total myth, best practices around remote, in-person, and hybrid. I know a lot of companies are thinking about that this year and much, much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here is Caitlin McGregor. What is Plum? What is the mission? And as you were just talking about, you guys are now 10 plus years in. So it's really a phenomenal growth story. Yeah, I was joking that everyone's talking about camels or the new unicorns. And I think, you know, Plum is definitely the definition of a camel and why it pays to do things right and have the right foundation to then scale and to really nail your ideal customer profile, which for us is enterprise. And as you know, it's, you know, you don't often start day one with massive global brands and global deployments. It takes time to get there. And it's been really rewarding to succeed in it. But I'll, I'll take a step back and kind of tell you, you know, the origin story and, you know, what we do and, and who we serve. So I built two businesses before Plum uh, for other people. And in the second business, I was hired by a Canadian educational software company to go down to New Hampshire, start up the new U.S. branch. And I went to make my first hire. And my executive coach said that if I screwed that up, it'd be a loss of $300,000 on the business. So not wanting to make that critical mistake, I ended up using a psychometric assessment that assessed people's cognitive ability and their work ethic. I used that on every single person that applied for the job. And I had two candidates stood out for completely different reasons. One that was perfect on paper, you know, had a master's in education, five years of relevant work experience. He was the golden boy by every measure. But the assessment showed he had a mediocre work ethic, but he was hired anyway. And then I had this other person who scored in the top 3% of the overall population for overall productivity. My executive coach said she was one in a thousand. I'd be an idiot not to hire her. So I ran an experiment, hired both. And within three months, the guy's wasn't, you know, he's doing 10% of his work. So he was let go. And the woman within a year and a half had replaced me as acting president uh, when I went on maternity leave. And her resume showed that she had two art degrees. Her only work experience was seven years of waitressing. And she didn't even know how to use Excel. So if I had relied on the traditional resume and how many employers to this day is that the starting point? If I had relied on a traditional resume, there's no way I would have interviewed her, let alone hired her. And for the next two and a half years, I just kept screening in these incredible diamonds in the rough. And having built two businesses for other people, frankly, I was looking for what I was going to do next. I was looking for how I was going to get back to Canada. And we saw an opportunity to democratize access to this highly predictive data. So psychometric data is four times more accurate than a resume at predicting on-the-job success. 
And if you look out at the landscape right now, every single job board, applicant tracking system, human capital management system, the basis of how they match people to jobs is by you know, resume parsing, scraping a bag of keywords from a resume and matching it to a bag of keywords to a job description. And that's how they're matching people and saying, this is who you should hire. You know, you volunteered at a hospital when you were in high school. You should go and become a nurse. Like it's really rudimentary technology that hasn't really changed much in the last 20 years. And it's all about pattern matching. And so I wanted to democratize access to the highly predictive data by taking best in class industrial organizational psychology and marrying it with best in class technology so that every single person could be matched every single job into roles that they will be happy, fulfilled and thrive, outperform their peers and stay longer. And that's what we've been able to do and really prove with incredible global brands like Scotiabank and Whirlpool and Cytel deploying us globally. I mean, those are huge names and and congrats on those achievements. But as you've talked about, I mean, 89% of failed hires are due to attitude, not skill. You've mentioned this on other podcasts, you've written about this, and yet most companies are obsessed with measuring skill first. Is this the number one thing employers are continuing to get wrong? They were for a long time. And then we started to see a shift in the middle of the pandemic because what we started to see was that employers like Scotiabank, what would happen is they were only hiring from five different universities, finance and business backgrounds. So they would go after a very small pool of candidates and go through a very lengthy process of interviewing them and then going out to make an offer. What would happen is all the other banks and consulting firms were going after the exact same pool of finance and business backgrounds from the same universities. And so maybe only a few of those would accept the job and the rest would be lost to the competition. And so there was this feeling of there aren't enough candidates for us to fill all these roles. How many times have we said this in the tech space all the time? There's just not enough salespeople in Canada. There's just not enough of this or that. It's a lie. It's something that we have convinced ourselves of. But what happened with Scotiabank in the middle of the pandemic is they decided to do something incredibly bold and different than any other bank or company. And they decided to completely eliminate resumes for all their internship, co-op, entry level, you know, recent grad positions. And instead, you apply with your one time plum profile, which is a 20 to 25 minute one time assessment that measures your innate talents, like your ability to innovate, communicate, work well with others, or soft skills or power skills, or whatever word you want to use it, basically what makes them exceptional and allows them to outperform their peers. And so they decided this one-time plum profile, that's how you apply to the bank. And so now somebody may apply and be a 40 match to be a financial analyst, but plum will say you're actually a 95 for commercial banking because you're going to be able to use your decision-making and your execution and your teamwork daily, and that's going to allow you to perform better and stay longer. And so what happened as a result of this is they're now hiring from 33 different colleges and universities. 40% of their hires are now STEM and arts backgrounds, so STEAM. And they've increased their hiring of underrepresented minorities to 60%. And by screening in all this talent that their competition was not looking at, they've been able to double their retention. And they had such a strong financial ROI that they just won Nucleus Researchers 2022 ROI of the Year Award for implementing technology that provided exceptional financial returns. And so in this case, it's not just being used with entry-level roles. We have companies all over the world that are using it every single candidate, director level and below. Part of their online application is completing this, and they're being matched not just to the role they applied to, 
but to all the roles in the organization. So that candidate pool that was such a small supply now is so much bigger because anybody that's ever applied and their existing employees, they can match everybody to every role. And they're not looking at what somebody has done historically, but based on what they could do if just given the opportunity. And that's where they're getting that increased quality hire and retention. So I want to double click on this idea that talent shortage is a lie, which suggests that the root cause is not an actual talent shortage. It's something else. What are the root causes here? I think retention is the biggest thing. And I'd say the biggest change in this market is most people are going, okay, we need to cut back hiring. Let's just be clear. If you have a key role and somebody leaves, you're not just leaving that empty. People are still hiring in this market, but the need to get that hire right is more important than ever. Nobody can afford the cost of a bad hire in this market. It's about making sure that you are hiring the absolute best. We all need to do more with less. So that hiring for quality is number one and really critical. But the real problem that I think people are aware of is retention. You know, if you even just look at talent acquisition versus talent management, talent acquisition budgets for years have been so much greater. They spend a boatload of money on programmatics, which is basically your pay per applicant, you know, being able to post jobs on LinkedIn. And indeed, like so much money is spent just trying to attract a candidate to even click to apply to a job. So talent acquisition budgets have been huge for a long time. They definitely get cut in recessions and different things like that. But the maturity in talent acquisition exists. There's much more technology solutions that are farther mature. There's more people that are on the talent acquisition side. So as organizations in general, talent management has been neglected. It is the piece of the puzzle that has received the least amount of support and maturity. And what we're seeing is businesses are finally going, oh, wait a second, holding on to the people I have is one of the most effective cost-saving measures that I can make and repurposing the people that I have and recognizing that if I take care of the people I have, they'll then encourage their friends to apply. You know, I won't be backfilling the roles as quickly. So I think that there's a newfound emphasis. And we started to see that during the pandemic, where we were starting to see that the individual employee had a lot more control in the equation. And we started to see that slip more recently with everything happening with Twitter and Elon Musk, where you're getting more of this command and control type of leader trying to rear their head and saying, everybody back into the office and trying to take that power back in an almost like overcorrection. And so there's a little bit of the jury's out to see where this is going to land because you're starting to see the pendulum swing back towards the employer. But I think every employer is realizing that investing in their employees is a necessity moving forward and that retention, you cannot have profits without people. So seeing people just as a cost center, seeing people just as a cog in your machine, that's not working for companies. And if you want to be on the leading edge and you want to be a company that is outperforming your competition, you have to be people centric. And there is some of that awareness, which means you have to invest in things like upskilling and internal mobility and employee development. And that's what's been so great about our journey is that we made that in the middle of the pandemic raised a seed round, $5 million Canadian round by Real Ventures, led by Janet Bannister in 2019. And that was to take the bet of going beyond talent acquisition, doing the full platform, seeing that you can't separate talent acquisition and talent management. It's two sides of the same coin. If you are really going to solve for your talent problem, you have to look at it holistically. And so what we did is we extended our platform to deal with employees and to help employees with that employee onboarding, that employee development, that employee internal mobility, upskilling, and identifying 
individuals that have that potential to be your future leader. And we're providing that data so that you can maximize and make your talent as efficient as possible to drive that growth. I want to come back to these benefits that you provide in one sec. But before I do that, I just noticed something because, you know, it's hyper relevant. There was a report put out earlier this week, I think it was by RBC, suggesting that nearly 50% of Canadian employees will look for a new role in 2023. I don't know if you saw that. To me, this suggests that beyond the salaries, most of these folks are just simply not motivated. They're not excited. They're not fulfilled in their roles right now. So I'd love to get your opinion on this. What do you make of this particular stat? How do we solve for this retention problem beyond the talent management piece, which you've already talked about, repurposing talent? What else can we do here and what else is going on? Yeah. So this started in the middle of the pandemic when people were getting burnt out. They were realizing that, wait a second, does my employer even care about me? Like this is a global pandemic, my health, I have all these responsibilities to these other people, homeschooling, all these things. And when employers didn't handle it properly, people were like, I'm just out. And there was massive, massive, massive turnover. And that really drove the beginning of the trend. I think when people thought that these layoffs with tech companies and the fear of a recession started coming, I think everybody thought that, well, no, people will just hold on to their jobs and you can treat them like shit again. And what we're seeing is that there has been a phenomenon for the last year called the quiet quitting. It's been happening. The statistics are clear. There is no sign of it slowing down where all of a sudden people are just holding on to any job that they can. People are evaluating their employers. So people leaving their jobs, yes. And it really comes down to, are they being treated as human beings? Are they being treated as adults? So a lot of people have woken up and realized that they don't have to be in jobs that treat them inhumanely, that don't treat them with respect, don't honor them, and they're walking. But the thing is, is the companies that are doing this right, they recognize that every single person has value to offer. If you have an incredibly innovative person that comes up with out-of-the-box ideas and you're putting them in a job that is incredibly bureaucratic, highly regulated, and they have no space to innovate and do things differently, you are squashing the best part of them and they're going to be a low performer. The employer has so much control over making people feel valued and setting them up for success and changing the outcome of their performance. And it's a choice as to whether or not an employer sees that as an opportunity or if they see it as we are just going to, you know, command and control and not recognize the opportunity to set people up to thrive. You talk a lot about repurposing talent. We're also just talking about the idea of creating fully functional, healthy remote teams. What are some remote work best practices and how do you maintain a healthy company culture without a physical office? I love this question. And I was actually really, really happy to see a new article come out earlier this week. And I can't quote which one it was, but they were talking about what are the trends for 2023. And this industry analyst had said one of the trends that they're seeing is that you won't be seeing companies really committing to hybrid. They'll either be going all in on remote or all in on in-person, but they've realized that the cost of trying to do the best of in-person and the best of remote is too high. It's too complicated. It's like you're by trying to do both, you fail at both. And that was kind of the journey that we had gone through where, you know, we had left the option of coming back into the office on the table for until basically this past summer when our lease came up. And, you know, we were constantly thinking about how to do 
hybrid. And I kept coming back to, especially as a small company, we weren't going to be able to do in-person or remote really effectively. We were constantly going to have inequalities if we were going to try to do that. And so we've gone all in on remote so we can be the best of the best at remote. So I think that's an interesting thing that's not talked about is I think a lot of companies are still a foot in both worlds and trying to do hybrid. And I wish them well, but it's you need to have like three times as much money because you need to do remote perfectly. You need to do in person perfectly and you need to do hybrid perfectly. So you need three times the amount of resources, three times the amount of money to be able to do it. You need three times the amount of personnel to manage it properly. So I think you're going to see a lot of people not doing hybrid. And I think this question of how do you make remote really be effective is going to be more and more and more a conversation because I think there's a lot of lessons that are still being learned. For me, the biggest thing that we look at is alignment. So you talked about culture fit before. I I think it's a really dangerous word because it's been misused so much and it's been used as an excuse to pattern recognize and, and look for people that are just like us. I think for me, the growing thing that we need to think about is alignment. Does the person have the proper alignment to the job that you need them to do? So like the way I first think about it is we have all grown up knowing that KPIs are important, key performance indicators. I don't think you'll find a single CEO in Canada that's like, ah, KPIs are crap. No, everybody will say something like KPIs and it could be OKRs or whatever you want to use. But there's always some sort of consensus that having goals that define success in a role is critical for making things work, right? Well, what we talk about is KBIs, the key behavioral indicators. That's the piece that's missing right now is what are those key behaviors that you need somebody to do in order to perform well in that role? And sometimes that changes. You know, the behaviors we needed before COVID, in the middle of COVID, after COVID, or post-COVID, whatever, those sometimes change. So it's about having it up to date, just like we look at KPIs You know, we don't borrow KPIs from a competitor. We don't look at KPIs from five years ago. You know, you look at what do you need moving forward for the next 12 months. With Plum, that's what we're trying to do is align those KBIs, key behavioral indicators, with those natural talents that somebody has so that you're getting the best behaviors from the best people out of your organization. The next step is, okay, you have that. You have somebody that is really good at communicating and working well with teams and innovating, and that's what you need at the behaviors you need in a role. Okay, great. The next level is, what are those goals at the macro level for the company and how do those cascade down to the department level and how do those roles and responsibilities cascade down to the individual? So how do you get everybody rowing in the same direction? How do you get everybody collaborating towards that common goal and how do you structure it and cascade it down in from goals down to individual roles and responsibilities? So we created internally uh, for our own use a collaborative company operating system. We just call it a COS. And that COS is really how we keep everybody aligned. And that means that when you're remote, you can have a high degree of trust. And so it's a combination of having the data on what drives and drains your employees and then having the data on what is everybody working on and are they rowing in the same direction. And that's how we have a huge degree of trust with our remote workforce and can support people on an individual level. Look, given there's a lot of industries now that have employees that can work from anywhere, way beyond borders, um, fully global. Do you feel like there are any specific challenges with creating this healthy alignment as you describe? I mean, I love the diversity. I mean, we, we've known that diversity is something that helps companies grow faster because when you do face a problem and you have multiple perspectives on it, you're more likely to come up with the best answer because you've got all these different viewpoints. Well, 
being able to hire people outside of your own geographic hub is another form of diversity. I love being in meetings and on Slack messages where we are talking about something and there's people on the phone either because of their age or their geographic location. They're not familiar with that antidote or familiar with that movie or familiar with that concept. And and it's always surprising. We're just like, really? Like you, but it's it's so fascinating because in that moment, that other person is being educated about something. And we see that happen the other way. We see it happen from different generations. We see it happen from different geographies, from different cultural backgrounds, that the conversation is just so much richer. And frankly, at the end of the day, the reason I'm an entrepreneur is that I'm a continuous learner. I want the next challenge because it forces me to grow. And I love that growth. And I love that continuous self-development. It is really boring when you already know everything. And so I love having people from all over at the table because they are bringing experiences that I've never had. So you've traveled the world for several months uh, in between jobs. You taught English in China. Talk about a diversity of experiences as an entrepreneur. Do you feel like these unique experiences have helped you grow as a founder, as an entrepreneur? And how do you evaluate, think about, assess a diversity of experiences in a candidate, for example? I mean, there's so many influences from traveling throughout my entire life. I got to spend, you know, we we hosted two people that were studying to be nurses uh, for a year when I was 10 um, from Indonesia. And then I had the ability to stay with different families and travel throughout Indonesia when I was 11 for a whole month. I caught the travel bug from that and and the appreciation for different backgrounds. And, and I was able to live in France for a year on an exchange in high school. And then I lived in Ghana and West Africa for a year in university on an exchange. And then I got to teach in China. And then, yes, I got to take three and a half months just to travel throughout Southeast Asia and, and some other places for three and a half months, kind of as a bit of sabbatical between jobs. And, you know, it has been incredible. I can't wait to be able to travel uh, with my kids to more exciting places than a beach right now, because I think it's necessary. Like we talk about the importance of, of university and college, but to me, the lessons that I've learned from other people and other cultures, I think has had more of a profound impact on me from an education standpoint. I think arrogance is really limiting when we think that we are the smartest and and the person with all the best ideas and our opinion is the most important. I think you see some really toxic behaviors, especially out of leaders. And so I think when you go somewhere and you see that something's done differently, I mean, how many companies have we seen that have just taken an idea that worked in a different market, realized that we didn't have it in North America, and then go and create that or vice versa? So, I mean, I think that it's absolutely critical for the learning journey. But not everybody, you know, people learn in different ways. Some people can just put their heads in a book and learn that way and they don't want to travel. For me, one of the things that fills my bucket is being able to learn from others. And that can be peers and that can be going somewhere else and observing in another culture. And I see that when people come to the table that haven't lived in an environment where they've been told you are the smartest person in the room all the time, they come into situations with different experiences. They come in looking to contribute in new ways. And I I just think that there's so, so many toxic outcomes when we get really fixated on hiring people like us. At the end of the day, the reason why humans pattern match is because we are trying to de-risk decisions. You would think as entrepreneurs and as startups, we're the biggest risk takers. You would think that investors into tech are the biggest risk takers. And the reality is, is the reason why everybody defaults into pattern matching is that it's a, it's a shortcut. It gives us a false sense of security. 
you know, if they look like me and talk like me, then they probably can, you know, be successful like I have. And it's really, really dangerous and it, it hurts our industry. And it's the biggest thing that I think we need to get over as an industry is realizing how it's not serving us and it's actually making us more insular and more scared and less innovative than other industries and that we need to get outside of that pattern matching. And it's, again, not from a malicious place, but it's, a, it's an accident in that we keep reinforcing this toxic belief that it's necessary to pattern match. And, that, and that's where culture fit comes in, you know, and, and why it's such a, a dangerous word, because people use it as an excuse to say, you know, do they fit our culture? And it's like, you can do better than that. Um, you can find people that are aligned to what you're looking for. And you can have people that have the behaviors that you need for success. But be very careful to the subtle biases that you're bringing in in terms of using your gut as to whether or not you're going to like people that are like you faster. How can companies take a hard look in the mirror and ask themselves if they've been a victim of this pattern matching that you're talking about? If they want to evaluate where they've been and say, look, I want to evaluate things going forward. If we have been pattern matching, I want to fix it. What types of questions can they ask themselves? Normally, if you look at the research around this, normally the best advice is to start at the top and work your way down. Because a lot of companies have actually done pretty good jobs, especially over the last couple of years with campus recruiting and getting more diversity in the early parts of the company. So high volume jobs, for example, you'll see more diversity. So sometimes they look around and they're like, oh, no, we got we got lots of people, you know, in the entry level jobs that have diversity. If they don't, then like <laughs> that, that's kind of a no brainer. That's such a huge opportunity. Often the bar of past experience, everybody can justify taking a bet on somebody. So there's definitely an easy way to fix it at the earliest levels in the organization and make more concentrated efforts. But a lot of companies have kind of done that. And so they give themselves a pat on the back, they check the box and they move on. So the first thing is look at those lower levels. That's kind of a 101. If you haven't done that, okay, great, you can do that. But most companies, I think, need to start at the top. So who's influencing them at the board? How much diversity is on that board? Because there is no CEO that is not feeling some sort of pressure from their board, especially right now. So when your advice is coming from people that are looking at the world through just one lens and not necessarily thinking about, hey, if you're going to let go of all of your people, you may need to be turning around in six months and hiring a bunch of them back. So how are we doing this? What are we investing in making sure we're cutting the right people and that we're doing it the right way and we're doing it with humanity and we're setting those people up for success? If all they care about is get me a new balance sheet where you've cut expenses and they're not having the rest of that conversation, that's going to impact the work that the company does going to impact the type of people and budgets around it. So I would say the first thing is you got to look at the board. Does everybody on the board look like you? That's a good place to start. The next thing is look at your executive team. Does everybody at the executive team look like you? These are really easy questions to ask. And then I would go a layer below that. The people that are the managers that are reporting into your executive team, who do they look like? By investing in people, you will get better performance. It will drive growth. And I'm not just saying that there's shitloads of research, very, very clear research explaining that this is not the corner to cut. By investing in people, you will increase your profits. And it starts with leaders talking from that place. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Musk in this context. You know, it's, it's front page news. So I'd love to get your take on it. I'll just play devil's advocate for a moment. You know, the flip side of the argument is, is Twitter was a, a very dysfunctionally run company for a long time. And if you look at the big tech 
names, it's the weakest performing by a mile. Uh, and the stock price has been reflective of that. So shareholders have been quite unhappy. And Musk would say he is simply cutting all the bloat. I would assume you have a much different take on this. Where do you think Musk is in terms of his MO? And where is he getting this respect for talent wrong? I mean, this is a really great question. And the reality is we will know whose side of the argument is factual and true 12 months from now. But I can tell you that if his goal going in was to make Twitter more profitable, to make it break even, to to increase revenues, to make it so that it was more financially viable as a business, if that was the goal, he has not accomplished that goal at all. Instead, what he's accomplished is incredibly expensive bad decisions. Very, 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 very expensive decisions. And that wasn't necessary. You know, so I think that if you want to play devil's advocate and say there was a lot of problems and they need to be cleaned up and there was a lot of unnecessary spend and there was huge opportunities to turn that business around, the way he did it is not how you do it by anybody's rule book, by anybody who is looking at best practice of transforming an organization. That's not how you do it, because when you do it the way he has, the consequences far outweigh the gains. There are really smart people that are at Twitter that, you know, have left. You know, you can't say the entire organization was bad or you wouldn't have all of the competing companies snapping them up. Are you kidding? He just gave his intellectual property to all of his competitors by letting his best talent leave. Why did his best talent leave? Because they do not want to be associated with the toxic behavior that happened. They do not want to stand by that. When you see a dictator doing something that is not good for people and is detrimental to the business, if you stay, you are endorsing that behavior. And so they didn't have a choice but to leave, even if they were good, even if they were part of the solution moving forward. And so I just think that the, even if the intention or the business goals were sound, the way it's been executed cannot be supported. That is a recipe for everything not to do. And I think it comes down to who the hell was he listening to? Does he listen to anybody? Because anybody with half a brain that has done any kind of turnaround of a company and in a modern sense would respect their people and treat their people entirely different than than what happened. Makes total sense. Caitlin, this has been such a nice and insightful, spirited discussion. Thanks so much for coming on. Plum.io for more info on Plum. Where else can people find you, Caitlin? Where do you hang out on social? Where can people see what you're up to? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn as well. You know, and just a shout out, if you go to Plum.io, you can go and take your own free Plum profile. Find out what your top three talents are. We have people literally by the minute sharing their top talent on LinkedIn and challenging their friends to take it. And it really becomes your own roadmap to how to make sure you are utilizing your innate talents on a daily basis so that you can be happy, fulfilled, and thrive. And you can get that right on the website. That's so cool. Forgot to mention this. As a final parting question slash statement, you were voted most likely to save the world back in high school. Do you, do you feel like you're channeling a bit of this right now as you build on your mission here? Yeah, I, I definitely am. I mean, you know, we spend more of our time working and than anything else that we do in our lives. And I think that we've been doing it wrong for the last hundred years. And I've spent the last decade earning the right to, you know, really advocate that this is the better way of doing it. We have incredible ROI and case studies and proof points showing that this works. And, you know, this to me is 
you know, my purpose is to be able to change the way that we look at people, not from that outdated eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, but by data that sets them up to be happy, filled and thrive. And it's working. And so, yeah, this is this is my impact. And, and that purpose helps drive not just me, but everybody else still at the company. I mean, they want this future for their peers, for their kids, for their, you know, people all over the world. This is an opportunity for everybody to find the right job to set them up for success long term. It's a great mission. Best of luck in 2023, Caitlin. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Electricast.